You're listening to the Prof. Joe COVID-19 Aged Care Podcast. If you're an aged care professional, you can connect with us at the Prof. Joe COVID-19 Aged Care Facebook group. Otherwise, you can connect with us at our regular page at Prof. Joe Online. You can also visit our website at profjoe.com.au for a collection of all our links. Also, feel free to email us at info at profjoe.com.au. Welcome. Welcome back, Professor John Banger. It's a pleasure to be able to talk to you on this podcast episode following up from our initial meeting. In this podcast, I want to explore the notion of trust and what keeps staff in long-term care and staff in the hospitals working during the COVID pandemic. We've seen situations in Spain and I assume other countries where long-term care or nursing homes have been deserted. What do you think is behind the staff not coming to work? That, From my experience, those that work in aged care or long-term care are generally kind, loving people who enjoy social connection. And it was really very hard for me to conceive that they wouldn't be there in a time of need. So let me pick up on your very last point. What has impressed me indescribably over these last two months has been the bravery, the courage, the dedication of healthcare professionals to come to work. I think years from now, as we look back on this, it will only, I think, reinforce an opinion that so many of us have of healthcare professionals, which is that most of them got in the profession for the right reason. That is to say, they genuinely, honestly want to help human beings who are suffering. Now, there has been conversation about trust in the United States, and I will tell you, we must protect our healthcare professionals. They must be at the front of the line when it comes to protective equipment, when it comes to access to medicinals, when it comes to, God forbid, if they would get ill and need an ICU bed or a ventilator, they should be prioritized. And we need to prioritize them largely for two reasons. The first reason is the obvious instrumental reason, which is that healthcare professionals, well, they care for other people. If we lose a nurse or a physician, that could mean hundreds of human beings who are ill who are not going to be taken care of. So the instrumental value of healthcare professionals is first and foremost. The other thing is simply a strategic, pragmatic consideration. If I'm a nurse or a physician and I'm daily exposing myself to the COVID virus and I didn't think that if I got sick or I got ill, that I wasn't going to go to the front of the line if I needed an ICU bed or therapeutics or a ventilator. Well, goodness gracious, I don't know that I'd want to come to work. It's just simply too dangerous. So those two issues, the instrumental value and simply the pragmatic strategy of protecting our healthcare professionals would be uppermost in my mind. I'm just wondering here about the psychological state that one must be in to not come to work. Do you think it was fear for themselves, fear for their family? Or what I hypothesised was perhaps I can't go to work if we're already short-staffed and I'm left with the dilemma of having to choose who will I provide care for and that's far harder to cope with. What would you speculate would be the reasons? The thing that I am 
very concerned about it. And my heart goes out to healthcare professionals when I read their personal stories here in the United States, is their concern about their families. I mean, so many of these stories are coming from nurses. They're married, they have children, and they're just extremely afraid of passing this virus on to their family. So it's not that they're not coming to work. What they are doing is they're staying in hotels near their hospitals and essentially kind of isolating themselves. So I think that that's a very, very real issue. The other issue about short staff and the fact that perhaps not only will they be working in such a frenzied manner that they might not be able to provide the care that they want, but that they might be facing anguishing decision-making at the bedside. Here's one that we are having in the United States somewhat. Providing protective equipment to family members whose loved ones are dying. A big problem here in the United States is that oftentimes family members have to, quote unquote, be with their loved one, watching their loved one die vis-a-vis a mobile phone or being on the other side of a plexiglass window. So some hospitals are providing protective equipment to families so that they can be at the bedside as their loved ones are perhaps going through their final hours. Well, of course, if you provide five sets of protective equipment to family members, that's five sets of protective equipment that the nurses and the doctors are going to be deprived of. So that's an anguishing kind of allocational problem. My response, though, as far as making these kinds of very, very ethically charged decisions is hospitals and care facilities, they need to have what we have been calling a triage committee. That is to say, they need to have a committee in place at their institutions that will relieve the bedside provider from having to make these anguishing decisions. The decisions are being made by the triage committee who can think in terms of these public health kinds of issues, these population health kinds of issues, because healthcare professionals are not trained to do that. Healthcare professionals are trained to treat that patient at the bedside and rather than make these utilitarian kinds of calculations as to how do we save the most lives or how do we preserve the most life years. So that triage committee, that institutional intelligence is extremely important in this unprecedented era. The thing that worries me, though, as a kind of a a person who's been interested in patient safety for a long time is if we come up with approaches, standards, guidelines to deal with this pandemic, when the pandemic goes away for whatever reason, and by the way, the last big one that we had was 100 years ago, we have very short memories about these kinds of things. Will we preserve the guidelines, the standards, the institutional intelligence that we've developed in dealing with this COVID virus, will we be able to sustain and preserve that when the next one comes along? And what I'm hearing in the United States is our public health experts are saying, do not become sanguine. They entirely expect a a return of this virus in the fall and in the winter. So we'll see how we do. I just wanted to come back to the issue around trust. So how do we demonstrate trust to our staff? The trust is not going to occur from a bottoms-up perspective. It's going to come from top-down. It's going to come from leadership. 
our Emory leadership is keeping in contact, obviously virtual contact, online contact with faculty and staff virtually daily. Messages with what we are doing, with opportunities for staff, for faculty to ask questions. We also have meetings. I mean, we have to develop a sense of solidarity because in that solidarity, there's going to be strength. Do you think trust can be established quickly in a crisis or is what we're seeing is a failure of trust over a long period of time and what we're seeing is institutional failure to build trust with staff? So the material that I've been studying and reading and talking about with colleagues says it's very, very difficult to develop standards, guidelines, operational procedures when the pandemic hits. Uh, because this is a pandemonium will reign, chaos will reign. And as you pointed out earlier, people will act according to their instincts. And therefore, there's going to be a lot of inconsistency throughout the country. When the disaster strikes, obviously, one needs cool heads. It seems to me that the most obvious way to kind of build that trust is to role model that executives and organizational leaders they need to create an emotional atmosphere. And that's the most important thing, even more important than an intellectual atmosphere. So the other part to the question was trust in times of uncertainty. And one of the consistent messages around crisis management and emergency response is having a single voice that the people can look to. What my experience has been is we're being asked to have blind faith in an individual or a committee that are making decisions for the country. And debate or any signs of dissent are considered counterproductive rather than being encouraged as a way of navigating through the uncertainty. Has that been your experience? And is that what you typically expect to see in these periods? That's not what's happening here in the United States. I think we have a very robust conversation about what's going on. And I'm extremely surprised, by the way, at how certain anticipations that we have had about this virus weeks ago have not transpired. To have early instituted those policies rather than waiting six weeks to institute those policies, we might have staved off a lot of the suffering and the harm that has occurred. So moving on to a different topic now, the question was, I'm uncertain as to why we're debating who gets the ventilator when if we had no ventilator and used that money to prevention strategies elsewhere, we might get a better gain. I don't know about that, but I will tell you that the ventilator conversation was all the rage uh, six weeks ago in the United States. And one New York hospital provided data showing that 88% of their COVID patients on ventilators died. So again, it's important to frame ethical guidelines and standards around clinical realities such that, you know, if the allocation of a ventilator, that may itself be a death sentence. You know, how does that then inform other kinds of things like masks and gowns and, and medicinals. And I kind of think that's where we're at right now. That's what we're struggling with right now as this virus proceeds. Do you think that it's the non-technical and simple solutions that we've struggled to accept as the way to beat the virus? That you're hand-washing social distancing, 
doesn't seem like we're taking the fight to the disease. Isn't that what you just described? Isn't that the history of public health in Western countries? I mean, it's not the development of a fancy, new, sophisticated genetic intervention. It's clean drinking water. It's being able to get to a doctor for vaccinations, that kind of thing. That's what's really improved our public health outcomes and profiles and really our quality of living. And think, Joe, about the role of the media in all of this. I mean, the role of news stations is, the objective is, we want viewers. We want people to view our programs. To the extent that washing your hands and maintaining social distance is a pretty bland news item and pales in comparison to the development of a new vaccine or a new drug, uh, well, that's what we're going to show. I mean, the news media is automatically going to go to the sensational rather than to the mundane. What do you think the future holds? What does the future hold? The, the scary thing is we don't know. Right now, we need to have leadership that's very scientifically informed. And that can, at the earliest, at the reasonably earliest moments, start taking those proactive measures, those realistic measures to, uh, to combat something like this. It did not happen here in the United States. I believe our sluggish response probably cost tens of thousands of lives. But I just hope that we've learned that lesson and that we can sustain those lessons, the lessons of fallibility that we're learning from this pandemic. I had hoped there would have been a peer review process in terms of the public health response, in terms of how decisions were being made. And I personally haven't seen that happen. We've been following the debate on the use of personal protective equipment, particularly face masks. And there's wide varying advice on face masks. And there was a lack of transparencies. We don't know whether the recommendations were being made to protect yourself or to protect others from you and whether the recommendations were based on availability or whether they were decisions around resource allocation and preserving equipment, which I think creates a loss of confidence in the directions being given. Dealing with this uncertainty is an ongoing challenge with this COVID because our knowledge base or pieces of our knowledge base are constantly changing. So it's difficult to find a certain degree of confidence in anything. The Centre for Disease Control has got a list of criteria about good risk communication or characteristics. And I'll go through them one at a time. There's, I think, essentially four and get you to give some comments about them. The first criteria for good risk communicators from the CDC is you want a person with expertise. You want someone who knows what they're talking about, knows how to fix the problem, and agrees with other known experts. Do you see any parallels between your work over time and what you've been seeing with the COVID pandemic on that question of expertise? Only that I hope that... Because you are going to have healthcare professionals inevitably with varying levels of expertise. Let us at least hope that they all share the same knowledge base and that different people at a single hospital are not saying different things to different people. I'm just hoping that we see a consistent message. 
that's being delivered to our patients and their families. You let us hope that that message is also evidentially, factually based. The second criteria that the CDC have raised is risk communicator is someone of good character. And the words they're using is, I feel like you're telling me the truth, you're not leaving out information, and that you're reliable. Yeah, yeah. So not everyone is a good communicator. And one of the things that we need to do in our training programs is to help our students deal with these emotionally painful and emotionally difficult conversations. And I think that's really where the training has to start. It's too late if we turn out a a physician or a nurse, put him or her out on the unit, and they simply can't tolerate uh, breaking bad news to patients or or family members, because uh, something like a pandemic is going to try it to the limit. The third point the CDC have made is identification with the person communicating. And so that person appears to share my values, experiences, or my fate. Perhaps that's been one of the strongest things about the pandemic is that we all identify with each other because we have the same fate, potentially. What that CDC guideline says to me is the need for empathic communication. If one way that I can get you to trust me is by asking continuous line of empathic kinds of questions, mostly bearing on what is it like to be you right now, rather than simply informing individuals. Healthcare professionals love to inform, and for a very good reason. Namely, they have all this clinical wisdom, and it feels good to be able to tell other people and to educate them. And usually that's fine, it works great, but in moments of emotional anguish, it doesn't work very well. People want to be, want to feel as though this healthcare professional really cares about me. And the best way you can manifest this kind of caring concern is by asking questions, probing questions as to what it's like to be that other individual. And it follows on then the fourth item from the CDC talks about goodwill and expands that by saying you care more about me than you care about yourself. People who do practice empathic communications ultimately do develop a caring attitude toward their patients. It's almost inevitable, you know, because you learn how empathic kinds of questions are so revealing. And by the way, they really create strong and powerful and trusting relationships. By the way, it's very important to recognize the role of humility in a lot of this too and to recognize my own fallibility as I proceed through, and even to share that with patients and family members as in, I really cannot guarantee how this is going to turn out. I don't know, but I will tell you, we are in this together, and I will do everything that I reasonably can for you. And I think that statement that we're in this together is probably the phrase that would help the most throughout the pandemic. So I think on that note, John, we'll finish up for this podcast. Thank you. All right, my pleasure. Thank you very much, John.